Oh, hello. Fancy seeing you here on a Monday morning, but glad you could join us. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, we will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their businesses to success in an ever-competitive business climate. So pour yourself a hot cup and enjoy the show. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today I have a special guest, Eric Reinholtz by, uh, from 30 by 40. Uh, that's his, that's your firm and it's also your YouTube channel. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I'm glad to be here. Good to, good to see you again. Yeah. So you're one of the more visible um, architects in the area just because you have uh, this YouTube channel that you kind of peel away the onion and, and show what you're doing and make these awesome videos. But go back to the start from when you got out of college, you know, what college did you go to? And then how did you kind of get into developing your own firm? Yeah. So, you know, I graduated college like most people uh, with this pretty naive notion of what practicing architecture was. Um, and I graduated, this was 1996. I went to Roger Williams University, Bristol, Rhode Island, small liberal arts school. Um, and I really chose that because I like the studio environment um, and, you know, just the workspace and not realizing that that's actually where you spend most of your time in school. So uh, it ended up being a good decision. I think um, it, I came from a small town, so the fit there was was pretty nice for me. Um, but I graduated in 96 into kind of the tail end of a recession. Um, and so I had a hard time finding uh, a job. I went to work for a firm of about 150, about eh, maybe three or four months after graduation. So it took me a while to, to find a job. And really, I stepped into um, a production environment. And, you know, I was I thought of myself as a designer, uh, but I just ended up, you know, like everybody else, working my way up through the ranks of, um, you know, becoming a job captain and gaining more responsibility there. But I was doing like large scale commercial projects, schools, renovations. Um, it's not stuff that I was really terribly interested in. Um, and my wife was going to grad school at that time. She found a postdoctoral fellowship up in Maine, which is where we live now. Um, and so she uh, joined this genetics lab and did her postdoc up here. And that was a chance for me to move from doing large scale commercial work up into, you know, this is really a vacation community. So a lot of people building second, third, fourth homes up here. Acadia National Park is right here. Um, so beautiful part of the country, uh, but pretty isolated. Um, and most of the firms that are, you know, functioning up here are small firms. So just a couple of people, a lot of sole practitioners. Um, and I interviewed at a number of those, you know, people were hiring here and there. Um, I went to work for a, an award-winning firm um, that was doing all houses. And for me, that was like a dream come true because when I was a kid, like practicing architecture was designing homes. And that's, that's always what I wanted to do. I just didn't think it was a reality. Uh, you know, I was practicing in sort of central Connecticut and there weren't a lot of architects designing homes down there. It was mostly, as I said, educational, you know, large scale commercial work. Um, so moving up here, I got a chance to practice this high end residential work and I just loved it. Um, it was a you know great opportunity for me. I worked for that firm for, uh, many, many years. Um, in 2008, you know, the recession in 2008 really bottomed out here in Maine in about 2012, 2013. Yep. And that firm that I was working for 
we had kind of churned through all the bigger projects that we had at the time and, you know, it was getting pretty thin. And so they kind of gathered us all together and said, look, everyone's got to take a pay cut if we're going to keep this shop open. And uh, it was a 20% pay cut. And they basically said, you know, you have the option if you need to supplement your income to take a day off a week and kind of seek out your own side projects to sort of fill the gap. Um, and the other option they gave us was to continue working for that firm and in sort of reinvest in the firm and kind of build it up, build up their business. And really, you know, I had seen working for somebody else as really being stable. And um, it was kind of in that moment that I realized, it, you know, if they could just kind of pull the plug on my job that like, it wasn't actually as stable as I thought it was. And right. so I used that one day a week to start building my business. So laying the foundations for 30 by 40 and uh, really just start running, you know, experiments. So I ended up sort of parting ways with them. And like anybody, when you start your own firm, you kind of take whatever comes along. So I had some side projects that I was able to quickly work through, but then I was taking like commercial projects, which is not something I love to do. Um, I was taking renovation projects like a couple hours away. Like I was just accepting anything and everything without a lot of real thought about like what kind of brand I was building or what kind of buildings I actually wanted out in the world. Um, and there was kind of one point where I had like five projects on at once and it's just me. Um, so, and this is probably sounds familiar to a lot of people um, maybe working as sole practitioners. So that meant five clients and five contractors and, five invoices and five, you know, all the things that come along with running five projects. And I was feeling like overwhelmed and just kind of annoyed that I was in this position that, um, you know, it wasn't making me happy doing this. And I felt like I was really clawing after every dollar. So I knew something had to change. Um, and it was kind of at this point that I had discovered um, Pat Flynn, Smart Passive Income, yep. I was studying entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I was, I read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, like seminal book for me. Um, and really, you know, he speaks about in that book, this, the idea of trading time for dollars and, you know, you're limited by the number of hours in the day, obviously, and also by your billing rate. So there's only so much I could bill for, for my time here. Um, and so I really started thinking strategically about how I might split the business between, you know, working for, you know, serving clients. So a services side of the business and then also like a product side of the business because, um, you know, I still wanted to work with clients. I still wanted to practice architecture and service clients, but, you know, I knew I couldn't do five at once. That was just, that wasn't sustainable for me. So I was going to pivot the business into working for fewer clients. So, you know, ideally one or two clients at a time. Um, and if I was going to do that, I needed a way to supplement that income that I was losing. So, the clients that I was working with, I was going to seek clients with higher budgets, which ultimately are better clients anyway, I, I came to learn. Um, but then I would also have to supplement that income with like the product side of the business. So this idea of building assets instead of just, um, you know, and generating wealth instead of just income. I think a lot of people treat their business like it's just an income generator. And, you know, to me working with clients, that's how I view that. So like time worked equals fee earned. Um, but products are 
a way to build wealth. So I really wanted to start investing in creating assets because, you know, once you create an asset, you can sell that multiple times. Your time, you can only sell once and there's a finite amount of it, right? Um, so really, I just started making a bunch of guesses and experiments. I was just running experiments. And, um, you know, as a new business, I started blogging. I'm like trying to figure out ways how I can get an audience um, and, you know, bring people into the business as a way of marketing, content marketing. Um, and when you don't have an audience, you have to leverage someone else's. You know, I, I mean, I have a pretty big audience right now, but I, I started off where everyone else starts with zero, complete zero. So I started looking around at that time at, um, you know, people who had larger audiences than I, and I found house.com. I had a portfolio on there and I started writing for them and I got hooked up with the editor there and they started, uh, you know, the articles that I wrote, they started promoting to their email list. And I think at the time their email list had something like 16 million subscribers on it. So it was just like this massive audience. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I was working with them. I was, they were publishing my articles. They were sending them out to their list and I started getting, you know, more client inquiries. And then I started seeing like, once you start putting content out in the world, you start seeing what people like, what they don't like. And so what I did with that was, you know, I just used that as a proving ground. I basically looked at the most popular articles that I had written and I started turning those into videos. And they were like, if you go back in my channel, kind of early days, there are just these awful kind of voiceovers. <laughs> so I had like a slideshow, you know, I took the images from the article that I wrote for house and I just narrated the article over it. And, um, and it, it, they were bad, but, um, you know, I started, it's this idea like Gary V. I don't know if you follow him at all. Yeah. Um, but he talks about document versus create. So I was kind of documenting while I was creating. Um, so I would, you know, I built a studio, I built a house. I was documenting all this stuff. I was treating it as content marketing. And then I was making videos about that stuff. And you pretty quickly learn what people like and what they don't like. Um, you know, and I've, as I was building my practice, I was sharing everything that I was learning just online. I was just freely sharing it all. And you know, so the articles I was writing on house eventually for the sort of practice side of the business, I turned into my first book, um, architect and entrepreneur. So that they were like basically the chapters in that book and you know, I'm learning something, I'm documenting it and then I'm, I'm publishing it. And so I kind of use that as a model for evolving the YouTube channel too. You know, as I started getting new, new work, new clients, I would basically document the design process and publish it on the channel. And I could see that, you know, people really started to like those videos a lot more and they really started resonating with that content. So I kind of started making these pivots um, away from doing those kind of slideshow videos into, you know, higher quality content. And I think in, in 2017, basically, I hired somebody to help me make a short film about my practice. And at that point, you know, I, I hired someone to do some writing for me, some storytelling and um, a story editor. And really from there, things really started to take off and change, um, you know, and, and now I'm just finding that when I'm making videos that that's handling all of my content marketing, um, that's bringing clients to me. And unlike Facebook or Instagram where, and if you've had any experience posting on social media, you know, oftentimes the life of those posts that you're spending time creating is really short, you know, it's right. an Instagram post is a day, right? Face Facebook quarter, quarter of a day, quarter right. of a day. Right. Yeah. So YouTube is just, it's so different than that. And, and I realize it, it does, and maybe we can talk about 
this as we go along, but you know, making a video is definitely a time investment for sure. But when you put it on YouTube, I mean, it's there for years. It's, I have videos that are sending me massive traffic that I published like five years ago. I mean, it, that's, that's an incredible asset to have working for you just in the background. And, you know, when we're talking about products and, you know, kind of revenue streams, I mean, there's advertising there. You can take this audience that you're building, you know, and I mean, you have a podcast, right? You have a big audience. You can treat an audience like it's this giant lever and you can use that however you choose. And I, I think that is, that's one thing that, um, I think people don't really talk about as much with social media is that, you know, the, the idea that an audience is a big asset to you and you can leverage that asset in many different ways. And so I'm using it to generate, you know, revenue for the product side of the business, obviously. So I have digital products. I have, you know, affiliate revenue that I have advertising revenue, book royalties, you know, there's, there's a number of different streams of revenue that are built off of that, but it also brings me like really great clients. So I've, you know, just recently started making this series of videos about this project I'm working on on a pretty remote island. Um, and the, the net effect of that is that, you know, clients who want to build in this climate, in this area, they see that and they're like, yeah, I want to do that. And there's no, when they come to me, there's no discussion of like, you know, are you the right fit? It's like they come to me feeling like they already know me. I mean, that's one of the most popular refrains that I hear is like, I feel like I already know you. And like all the discussion about fees and all, you know, like it's kind of secondary to just wanting to work together. So I think it's, you know, I don't want to make it seem like it was planned from the start because, you know, it's hindsight obviously is, is 2020, but, um, and looking back, it's, it's easy to create a false narrative. Um, but I think it's the result of a lot of different experiments that I've run, um, that I've landed here. And, you know, obviously I think, um, making videos is a part of my creative practice now too. Um, you know, making houses, designing buildings, it takes a long time. You know, you know how long it takes from sketch to finished building. Like, and I'm an impatient guy. So making a video, if I can make a video in a week, I can have this kind of creative infusion every week or, you know, every other week. Um, that I found to be really liberating and sustaining and as part of a creative practice. Um, yeah. so yeah, it feels like it kind of maybe, maybe I've cobbled together all these different, um, pieces to get where I am. Um, and ultimately I've been able to ditch the model of having to support, you know, five different clients and five different contractors and all that. Uh, and I've traded that for working with one or two clients at a time, um, and supplementing that revenue that I've given up there with, you know, the product side of the business. So it's, it's kind of like a 20, 80, 20 split between client revenue versus product revenue. Okay. Well, that was going to be my next question. Um, and maybe, maybe you already answered it, but maybe we dive a little bit deeper. Let's, let's pretend just to be very simple that you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you have your one to two clients. So it's a two part questions. How, how is that working now in this quote unquote recession in this, um, what's going on now? And then if you, if you are hypothetically making a hundred thousand dollars a year, what's the breakdown between like YouTube, your products, and then your architecture business? Um, yeah, <laughs> well, I've, you know, right now in the pandemic, um, it's the split is way higher in terms of product 
revenue, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because you know, so many people are on YouTube. You know, it's like YouTube revenues are higher. Digital products are selling, you know, much faster. People are learning, you know, mm-hmm. in a different way now. And I happen to be in a position to provide, you know, I'm one of a few people who have digital products that address those needs. So, you know, if we're, if we're talking about split, um, it's, I've always um, been aiming for an 80-20 split between client services work and passive products work. So, uh, you know, product revenue. And if I look at, you know, just in terms of where YouTube revenue fits into that model, um, it fluctuates with season and ad rates. So, you know, end of the year when people are, when advertisers are spending heavy on YouTube, that ad revenue is going to be, you know, double what it might be at other parts of the year. So it really does fluctuate. And right now I've just seen that ad rates uh, are really falling. I mean, as you'd guess uh, that people are spending a lot less advertising, even though there's more eyeballs on YouTube, people are just unsure right now. Um, And, you know, I think this is still early days in terms of the pandemic uh, in terms of, you know, how people are spending. So this may just be a blip for me right now where people are just, you know, hunkered down, they're investing and learning for themselves and they're buying digital products and I happen to be there. So that's working, you know, in three months, I don't know what this is going to look like, but um, you know, I think part of the way I've really tried to position my business is to be, as lean as I can possibly be. So I never envisioned having a lot of employees. I know you have a number of employees and that that's its own responsibility and involves a different level of care than I was up for. Um, but running a lean business means, you know, it's good and bad, I guess, because, you know, being lean means, you know, um, I don't have a lot of fat to trim if I had to, had to do that. So I'm really relying on the systems working and a well-oiled machine. Um, you know, running lean business also helps you to build cash reserves. And I think, you know, the pandemic pandemic has taught me that having cash reserves is um, pretty important <laughs> and it, it helps me sleep better at night personally, but it also helps me make better decisions because I have more, you know, cash in the bank. It makes it easier to say no to things that I might, you know, like the previous firm I was working for, they were saying yes to clients that I never, I never would have said yes to them. Um, and having some cash in the bank definitely helps with that. And, you know, so I think being able, being a lean business helps you to pivot and, you know, these cash reserves help you, help you to do, make better decisions. I think with that, you know, having multiple streams of revenue, just, it softens out the volatility. It's a hedge against volatility, right? You know, if you can have advertising revenue and book royalties and, merch and, you know, brand deals, affiliate income, all this stuff can really smooth out those, those bumps. Um, so like right now, maybe the revenue split is probably around 90, 10 in terms of client work. Um, but that will, you know, ideally it's always going to be 80, 20 in terms of active client services work, 80% product work. Um, and maybe as I transition out of the business in the future, that, you know, that split obviously changes. But I always wanted to have clients in the business because I feel like it keeps me connected to current building science, current technology. You know, it gives me something to talk about. It's content for the channel. Like without that, what I'm, I'm just a professor in a school, yeah, right? right? Like, and so I think that, that I really do see that as part of the value 
that I add as a channel that I'm both practicing. So, so like I'm always running experiments. I'm seeing what's working, what isn't. And, and I'm just sharing the, the real life experience of what I'm going through now, you know? And um, I think for me, the revenue, having the 80, 20 split in the revenue um, and set up. So products and services, it's just, it, it's pretty stable. Um, and I like that. So. Yeah. Um, your architecture practice client acquisition. How do you handle that? If you're trying to keep this, you know, one to two clients, do you basically, once you get those one to two clients, is it natural? Do you have to then when you're winding down search and then go find one to two more clients or are you staggering clients? Are you letting, you know, are they coming to you and you have a queue? Could you walk us through that? Because some people want to do that model. And some people do it successfully and some people do it unsuccessfully. I, I've had a bunch of um, different professionals and not only just architecture, but construction where, hey, you know, I finished this one project and let's say it's construction or architecture. Normally, it's very hard at the end to get everything through. The client, you might have gone over time. You might have gone over your own budget. Um, so, so all you're doing is focus on that. And then you come out the other side and you realize you have no client whatsoever for the next run. And then, then you're not in this good position. You might not have good cash flow. You might take on anything. So could you speak to how you manage that? And maybe yep. if you've learned anything or experienced that. Yeah. Um, that's definitely the problem that I was running into when I had many clients, like it, the more clients you have, the worse this problem gets because the management issue and those transition zones is, is horrible. And if one goes wrong and you're managing four others to, you know, it's like, it's just a nightmare. So for me, you know, one in design, one in construction is plenty. And, and those overruns have never been enough where it's impacted um, the following client. So I have a waiting list. Basically client comes to me, you know, people are inquiring every week. I tell them where the waiting list is at, what I projected out to be. So 18 to 24 months right now is the waiting list. Say like, if you can wait that long, cool, join. And um, if you How many people fall off the waiting list? How many people go on the waiting list and then in two months decide to fall off? Zero percent, a hundred, you know, 20%, 50%. You know, I haven't, I don't feel like I've been doing this long enough to, to say that, you know, if I have a mm -hmm. two year waiting list, I like, it hasn't been that many people that have fallen off of it. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't feel like I have the best system for managing it because, um, you know, when I first started it, I did, I didn't even have a retainer. And so when you don't have a retainer, they're, they're falling off the waiting list pretty hard. Right. Cause like there's, there's absolutely nothing keeping them there. So, you know, set up some kind of a retainer system. Um, and I, I think the client base that I'm seeking, so people looking to build a home, 2 million bucks, you know, they're, they're going to make a decision and stick with that decision. That's just generally been my experience. I think probably if you're looking at clients that are looking to spend 750, maybe less than a million, maybe that calculus is different. I can't really speak to that. Um, but you know, the, the waiting list for me has worked out well. Be, um, it's also a way of kind of triaging clients. You know, uh, I find the better clients, they're, they're not in a rush to get the thing done. They're not, um, they want to work through the process and do it correctly and they're willing to wait. So I don't know that this is going to work for everybody. Um, but it's just, you know, it's the system that I found works 
works best, works best for me. And, um, you know, I think it, there are certain people who just, they're not even going to contemplate the idea of waiting two years to start designing their project. And that, like, that's just, that's how it's got to work for me. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Does that no, answer your question? Absolutely. Um, you said that you hired a video editor and a writer. And I found that interesting because as I hear your story, that was you. And then now you hired that out. So yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so um, this is like, so this, I did this as a sort of one-time effort. Um, because I felt like I had gotten to a point with my videos that I wasn't, I wasn't making any forward progress. So mm-hmm. I basically hired my architectural photographer who also does video. Um, and I wanted to use it as a kind of learning experience. So I spent quite a bit of money on making this kind of short film. Um, and what which, I, which did, film is it? So people it's, know it's called the choice to make. Yep. It, yep. It was in, yeah, it was in the architecture and design film festival. I think this was in 2017 that it was in there. Um, and it's traveled around the country. Um, and it's got, yeah, it's got a great number of views on it on YouTube now, but basically I treated that like uh, I wanted to learn from him. I wanted to see what equipment he used. I wanted to see his, how he framed shots. I wanted to see how he white balanced. I wanted to see how the editing process worked and like how choosing music worked. And we started making it and I, I gave him a script and he's like, no, nah, like this is not going to work for this. You have to hire a story editor because this needs to be a story. And so I hired a story editor and I worked with her. And so I treated that as a one-time learning experience. I spent a lot of money <laughs> learning yeah. there and then I took the lessons from that one video and I started applying them forward. So yeah, today I still, that's the only video that has not been, you know, edited or shot by me. And there's some footage in there that I shot, but you know, I, I treated that as this sort of experiment that I was willing to invest in. And I learned a ton from doing that. So I don't work with the story editor today. I do all my shots today. I I do all my camera work, all my editing. It's a ton of work. Um, But I really saw that as an inflection point because it taught me that, you know, in order to take this seriously, that I had to really kind of level a lot of different things up. Um, If I wanted to treat it more like an art form than just a, a way to deliver information. And I don't, I don't pretend that that's the right way for everybody to do it. Like if you're making videos to be, to market your firm, like especially right now during the pandemic, like people are looking for informal stuff, like sitting in your living room, recording a video, just talking about what you're doing. Like that's probably going to hit a lot better than a highly produced thing. I mean, YouTube is, it's about you. It should be about you. It shouldn't be about like how beautiful you can make it because it's, you know, people are starting to correlate the, high production values with television and people don't, they're not looking for television anymore. They're looking for something different. So um, it's just the way I've done it. I see it as an art form. I enjoy doing it that way, but it's, it doesn't require the same level of investment that I've put into it. Right. I do think there's two different paths. And I do think one of the reasons you are successful is because your videos are so professional and well done. Um, so if anyone's listening to this that hasn't seen it, go to YouTube, uh, you know, YouTube 30 by 40, you'll find it. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, but it is weird because then you could have, you know, someone in their basement just talking and they might get just as many views. Yeah. And, but I, I wouldn't say for you, you should transition to that or maybe you should, I, I don't know, but definitely your view, your videos are quality. And I think people appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Next, 
let's talk about the, so you have a product page. You talk about that product, you know, making a product. Can mm-hmm. you talk us through what products you created, why you created them, and, and maybe which ones hit the most with people? <laughs> oh, oh, I got to give away all my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I created the shop on my website as, um, you know, an early effort to sell plan sets. Like, and that is the first, that's the, the, the most common question I get from other architects that are looking at my stuff going, Hey, I'm going to make like, every, I hear this from everybody. I'm going to make plan sets and sell them. Um, and if you go on my website right now, you'll see that I'm not selling plan sets on my website. Anymore. Every time someone asks me that, I say, I, it, I say it doesn't work. What do you say? <laughs> well, it works. Um, and I actually, th- I mean, I talk about this in my course. I have a new course. Um, so I'm not going to give away all the secrets here, but I know that's fine. Yeah. I will say that, um, it's not as passive as you think it might be. And I think it's, I think it can be a great way to springboard a new business. And I, I had a lot of clients and even up until just recently, um, have spent a lot of money with me who thought they were going to buy like a thousand dollar plan set and then ended up spending a whole lot more than that with me. Um, because the, the thing about plan sets and I don't know, um, have you experimented with selling them yourself? Oh, maybe like seven years ago, half-heartedly. Okay. Yeah. The thing about them is, um, you know, everybody is an expert in their own home. And if people are looking for plan sets, they're looking to save money. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you got an expert in what's best for them that doesn't put a high value on design, uh, looking to save a buck. And, um, they want to fine tune and tweak everything. Like they want to, my experience was they wanted to play architect and Mm -hmm. some people are up for that game. Some people aren't. I, my business kind of, I think outgrew the plan sets a bit. Um, and I still sell them. I don't sell them on my website. I, they're in a different place now. Um, and I'm kind of running some new experiments with that cause I still think there's a way to make it more passive than what it is right now. But you know, I definitely started that way and I used the plan set business, um, in times that were pretty lean for the business to recruit new clients and ter- just generate it like, I knew someone was going to want to fine tune the plan set. So I designed them in a way that they'd have to customize them and spend, instead of spending a thousand bucks, they'd have to spend like 5,000, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a strategic way to, to turn it into a real business. But you know, at the end of the day, like if you want to do custom homes, you know, doing modifying plan sets, you know, a, a design you've designed six or seven years ago, six or eight times, it's like, it's not all that fun, I think. Um, so, I think there's definitely a chance to earn quite a bit there and uh, ways to take that business somewhere that I didn't take it. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, I guess. Yep. Um, there's, you know, right now I've, in the past year, I really doubled down on this idea about um, creating more information products. So courses have been huge for me. And, you know, I think the, as you get into this and for any architect who's interested in, you know, creating courses or creating information products, you know, the higher value you can assign to an information product, the better you're going to do at it. You know, those are going to be the ones that earn the lion's share of, of the, the revenues. Um, unless you choose to price something really 
low and sell a ton of them, which is also possible. I'll say that. Um, but you have to have a larger audience to do that. Um, so, you know, I have courses, information products. I have like a procreate pack, which I just made. I have a SketchUp template. I have AutoCAD template, Revit template. And each one of those products are hooked into other educational um, components. So it's not just like buy the template. It's also buy the template. And then here, I'll show you how to use it or I'll show you how to turn it into something else, something bigger. Um, there's obviously books. There's, um, I started making physical products last year. So I made a sketchbook. Um, and so I'm, that's actually just coming back into stock now. So Amazon's not accepting new shipments yep. of non-essential items, as you probably know. So I'm uh, waiting to get those back in stock. And then I have another physical product that's in development. Um, I have merch. Um, you know, you, I know you've experimented with a lot of these things too. Um, and there are definite winners. I can see the definite winners. And, you know, it's a lot of selling shovels, I think, at this point. Um, it's, I think they're, um, the YouTube channel allows me to reach an audience and operate at a scale that, you know, other people wouldn't be able to. And I think, you know, for you, probably the podcast allows a similar thing. Um, I don't do a lot of, like, coaching, but there's obviously you know, I could do workshops. There's, there's plenty of opportunities, I think, to take, you know, there's this idea that I talk about in my course about turning sources into resources. Um, and, you know, as architects, we have a ton of source information, uh, but we have a hard time turning that into a resource, something that's useful. And, you know, I think you're doing it here with this podcast by tapping into other professionals, um, sharing your own experiences from your firm and, you know, just kind of teasing out this information, then the, the real question becomes, you know, where is, how do you extract value from that? Um, and I think as architects, we can extract all kinds of value from all different parts of our process. It's just, it's, it takes um, a different sort of lens. You have to look at your practice a little bit differently. And to me, that's exciting. It's, that's the kind of business I always wanted, you know, when I was, I tell the story, you know, when I was a kid, my sister and I, I have the younger sister. Um, and so we would always set up like a shop in our house, right? The grocery store. She'd set up a shop. I'd set up a shop and we go and shop in each other's grocery store. Well, I was like, my store was like, I want to design the graphics for the store entry. I want to design where the products were going to go. I want to buy the products. I want to write the invoice. I want to do the graphic design. Like I want to do the whole thing. So for me, like this, the business of architecture is, it's about the whole nut. It's about being creative with your business strategies. It's about getting to design graphics. It's about, you know, UI, UX, designing websites. Like all the whole thing is interesting to me. It's all one big design problem. It's not just like designing the house and figuring out how we get that built, but it's how do I make a creative life that works for me? Um, in the best way possible. And I find that exciting. And, you know, the shop is kind of one dimension to the practice. It allows me to experiment with all these different things. You know, I, now I know all about supply chains in China and how to price products and sell them on Amazon and what works there and what doesn't, how you get reviews. And like, it's all part of it. Um, you know, when you figure out how to market a physical product on Amazon, that, that can only help but feed back into the business, you know, help you make you a better marketer. Um, and I, I don't know, I just find it all kind of cool and interesting. Yeah. So um, I find this and it's hard for me to convey 
but I think I do it on, on the podcast enough. But there's things that I've learned or lessons that I feel like are a better way. And I just wish, you know, like, hey, I know that I'm selling this product, but like, trust me, it, it's worth it. So what do you think for you, not the one that makes you the most money, but the one that, you know, is it the book? Is it the template? Is it the course where you're like, I really wish that people would just take my word for it, that this is, this is going to help them out. Do you, does, do you have that feeling? Does one stick out for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think all roads have led to this course that I've released and you know, it's not a small number that's attached to the course, but I feel like the transformation, the change is so worth it. I mean, the, the value differential between the cost of the course and what you get out of it is huge. So for me, that would most certainly be it. Be it. You know, it's like so many people come to me saying, I want the kind of business you have. Like, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to, you know, practice in this way and only take one client. And, and you know, my answer to that is like, here's how you do it. Like, and the hard part about it is there, it's, there's no quick fix. It's like making content, making videos, like building an audience, you know, this like yeah. investing time in, in doing a podcast. Like what's the, what's the immediate ROI, right? If, if someone asked you that question, what would you say? I, sorry, I was looking at your, I, I clicked on it and I found it. And it's hilarious that you're using teachable because we use teachable also. And I, and I really like it. Did, um, uh, how did you know about teachable? Uh, you know, a long time ago, I was researching course platforms. It used to be called Fedora, and I wrote about it in my first book. Um, but it's huge. I mean, it's one of the biggest course platforms out there. Um, so, yeah, it's not. And it was founded by a guy who was yeah, a very similar story to me. You know, I, I mean, I, I found resonance in his story in that, you know, he was trying to share information. And he basically put it up on this platform, and the platform discounted his course you know, 95%. So I don't know what, he won't say what platform he used initially, whether that was Udemy or Skillshare or what, but, um, you know, basically he, the, the platform he built is in support of creators. I mean, it's not a marketplace. They don't put your course next to someone else's course. The marketing is all on you. So, and, and you know this yep. because you're on Teachable, um, but on something like Udemy or Skillshare, it's a marketplace. So you're in direct competition with a thousand other people. So um, to me, they support creators and I could totally get behind that mission. I love the platform. I love what it's allowed me to do. It's allowed me to move all my stuff off of Gumroad and onto teachable. So, you know, all my templates and things yep. like that are moving over there. But. So, so how I found it, I went to your website, 30 by 40.com, which is all spelled out, not the numbers. And then you have a shop and it's a plus E course. And then you click on it and it, you click on the learn more and it takes you to, to basically the outline of your course. So that's why I got distracted. Uh, what question did you ask? <laughs> well, I was asking you, you know, um, because I was saying, you know, the course the course offers a transformation, right? Um, but people have a hard time. They want the sort of quick fix. They want the like, well, what am I going to get out of it? Like immediately. And you know, what I was asking you was you've done a podcast, right? How, how many years have you been doing this podcast? Like five years or something. Five years, right? Yeah. So what, if I were to ask you what the return on investment of this podcast is, what, what's your answer? I mean, it's, it's like impossible to answer, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, in the beginning, we were just doing it to share, just like your YouTube channel. Um, and, and it was honestly, you know, we knew it might come back, but then 
there was a bigger sense too, is that we, we've had, you know, we have a bunch of principles um, and our firm F9 productions, if you go on our website, there's actually nine principles of, of what we go by. And one of the, one of them is more responsibility, more, more reward. Um, and, and we take that on internally, but we try to share that message externally so that architects, you know, you, you do architecture and construction and it helps the whole profession because I think a lot of people are sick of maybe low value. They think that architects have low, low value. And it, and one of it is because honestly, you don't take on enough responsibility and that's hard to hear because you do design and all this stuff, but, but people don't see that. They see the buck stops with the contractor, right? The buck stops there. Like that's where the money is and, and, and all that. So if you can expand, you know, what you're doing and, and take on that more responsibility, it does lead to more reward and us sharing and hope, and you sharing too. I don't know if you thought about this way. If we get that message across to everyone, all of a sudden the whole profession becomes more respectable. And then what we do becomes more respectable, which then leads to, to more reward. So that was the, the beginning of it. And then it's led to, I mean, the relation, we've actually got clients, you know, from the podcast, which oh, yeah. we weren't, yeah, we weren't selling, you know, anything, but, but our Revit course, which is ours, which we think is, we do it differently. If you did it this way, we feel like it would really help out. Um, but that's, you know, that's just, you know, a little read uh, on the podcast. Um, and then it was the development, you know, we developed this building that we said in here and we're like, Hey, we're doing this for the first time. You want to, you want to see what's going on? Because Lance and I went a little crazy at one point. <laughs> it was quite stressful. So, uh, um, so the rewards are there. Someone asked me like, what is the ROI for time? You know, and it, it's, it's hard to put a number on that. It is, it, but it's always increasing, isn't it? Like that, that's the thing that when you put, when you build assets and you put them out into the world and you know, my intention is the same as yours. I'm trying to make this profession a better place. I released a video showing me collaborating with my structural engineer and like, it's been one of my most popular videos in the past six months. It shows another way that you can work with a professional. It doesn't have to be adversarial. I, I titled the video structural engineer versus architect right. and everyone nice. clicked on it because they think like that, that's the headbutting, right? That's happening, but it doesn't have to be like that. It can be collaborative. So when you put assets like this out into the world, you're, you're, you're promoting a more positive vision of what this can be. Like this can absolutely, this relationship can work like this. Like, and I've got the same series of videos planned with contractors. Like it doesn't have to be headbutting. Like it yep. can be collaborative. And I think those assets really, they're always gaining in value because you know, the, the more people that watch it, the more people are changed, the more it changes, you know, it's like throwing a stone into a pond. That ripple effect continues further and further out. I think what you trade in this, and, and I don't know if this is true for you, um, but you know, if I'm choosing to only work with one client at a time, I'm choosing legacy um, and impact over a portfolio of work. I don't like, I'm not going to do that many projects in my life. Like I'm just, that's not the way it's going to be for me. Um, but I'm able to have an outsized impact in the world by choosing to do this. And if I can also make that support the kind of creative life that I want, like to me, that's, 
that's a huge win. I mean, I have like, my videos have something like 27 million views on them. Like if I aggregate the total, yep. like that's crazy to think about. Like if you think about how many people have listened to your podcast and, and have been changed, like that's an incredible impact you can have on the world. So instead of taking this kind of myopic view of like, how am I going to earn income this next month? Like think about it, you know, with a, a broader totality in mind, like how can I, how can I take what I'm making and also have it affect change in the world, like help other people. Um, and I think, you know, as you found, I've found by making these videos and sharing information freely, um, that is, that just, it comes back in ways you never could have predicted and you can't put an ROI on it. Like you can't actually put a number on it. Um, but it does take investing in, in making these assets. Like you're taking your, this is non-billable time for you. It's non-billable time for me. Like we're, we're investing in this because we believe in that idea, but we also know that it's going to come back, back around in some unexpected ways. And I love that about doing this. I mean, it's certainly, it's not for everybody. Um, yeah. But I think in terms of, if we're talking about, you know, the products that I offer that can possibly affect the most change, it would definitely be, that course. Um, and that's paired with the toolkit too, um, that I offer. That's kind of an entry level product. And then the, the courses kind of take the next step and here's how to, exactly how to do that. Um, yeah. And I, I do think that there's two levels of value, um, in most courses that either I produce, and I'm going to assume the same for you is yes, you could go watch them and you could take out one little snippet and you could apply that and say that applies to my firm. I just made something a little bit better. And that's the low hanging fruit. But it's just like starting any business or any company. When Nike was first making their first 10,000 shoes, their ROI was probably negative $500,000. You know, when uh, Amazon, their first 10 years, their ROI was negative, you know, billions, billions of dollars. Now Amazon, holy cow, their potential. Even where they are, people think that they're big. I don't think people even know how big Amazon can really get. Like it can take over UPS. It can take over these other, these other entities. Um, so, so that's that long game that you were kind of talking about and alluding to. So um, yeah. yeah and, I, and I, delayed gratification. Like you gotta, dude. like it does take investment. <laughs> like you gotta invest first. And, and I think, you know, I try and give people quick wins, um, especially in the course. Cause I think that's important, but a lot of it does have does come back to how much are you willing to invest to get the kind of life that you want out of it, and that's that's what it takes. Um, and you know, I mean, yeah. So, are there any um, books that you would recommend, uh, business or architecture wise, that kind of influenced you? I mean, for sure, like the Four Hour Work Week for me. Well, and I've you know I've spoken about this before. I think there's some ideas in there. I think the ideas are pretty timeless. Like I still think they're applicable today. It may not resonate with everyone in the way that it did with me. Um, Cause I think some of the stuff is a little bit dated. That material is dated, but the, you know, the primary pivot for me after reading that book was, you know, the relationship of, you know, leveraging time to its highest and best use. I mean, for me, that was, I never really thought about things in that way. And that fundamentally changed like what I was planning to do with the business before that I was, I was going to do whatever else did, you know, like I'm going to look for clients. And when that client's done, I'll look for another one. It's like this hamster wheel. And so for me, that was really a, a pivotal book um, from that side of it, you know, and I, 
it's hard because I think the practice itself here that I've built is, is really kind of, uh, there's like a dichotomy between the sort of analog and the digital, right? And th- there's all these dichotomies like between art and business. So if I look at, you know, how do I balance the business with the art? Um, you know, if four hour work week is the business, the art would be for me, uh, Peter Zumthor's thinking architecture. Um, you know, one of my favorite film directors, Werner Herzog, I don't know if you know him, he, he yes. did the Grizzly Man. Yeah. Um, he's got this masterclass that I took. Um, and he talks about like his process for his creative process for writing scripts. And before he sits down to write a script, he, he basically, he listens to Beethoven symphonies. He reads the poetic Edda, like this ancient Icelandic poetry. He reads, you know, Virgil, like just, he infuses his mind with like the highest and best caliber material source material that's out there. And then he writes like with a fury. And for me, like Zumthor, like it's hard to get better than Zumthor from an architecture standpoint. And it's a reminder for me, what's possible. Like we, we're all working with the same raw materials. We all get concrete and stone and metal and glass. And what he does with those things is transformative. Like it's completely amazing. And I, I don't uh, fancy myself to be anywhere near the caliber of Zumthor, but if like before I'm designing something or while I'm designing something like he's on my desk and I think, you know, he writes very beautifully about the experience of architecture in that book, thinking architecture. Um, and in a really resonant way with me, you're talking about like the slam of a screen door on a childhood home or the creak of a stair. Like those are all things for me that resonate in my practice and about experiencing architecture and really thinking hard about what it could be. So I think, you know, those two books could probably bookend the practice, you know, like being sensible and smart and, and crafty and wily with the business and keeping art as a part of it, you know, really the highest art, form possible. Um, yeah. And I, and I think, I hope that that comes through in the videos too, you know, everything that I'm putting out there, all the content on Instagram or, you know, wherever it is that there's some level of both art and craft in business. Awesome. Uh, knowing what you know now, your whole journey, (laughs) if you could go back in time when you were just starting, what would you tell yourself? Um, I mean, yeah, so many things probably. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I shouldn't have waited so long to do that. Um, and, and I really, I, I kept that like a little dream on a shelf for a long, long time. So having done it now, I can look back and say, wow, you, you, you should have made a go of this much earlier. Um, but, you know, I, I come back to, there's a phrase that I put at the end of all my videos that says, go make things. Um, you know, and I really believe that making is, you know, makers shape the conversation. Consumers, you know, they just, they get to passively consume and react to that information. So, you know, when you're making things in the world, you're shaping culture. You're shaping that conversation. Um, you know, uh, do you know Derek Sivers at all? Do you listen to his yes. podcast? Yeah. I don't listen to his podcast, but I know of him. Yeah. And he, yeah. Somehow I was emailing with him back and forth a while ago. I should get him oh, on the really? podcast. Oh my God. He's, a, he's an incredible guy. Yeah. Um, so he has this quote that I love, you know, ideas are just a multiplier of execution. Um, you know, so like a so, so you take a so, so idea, like a mediocre idea, right. And put a great execution behind it. You, you know, you compare that to a phenomenal idea, a banger idea with no execution. And what do you have? You have nothing. So, you know, I think making things has always been at the core of my own creative life. And, you know, I can't 
imagine this business really without making things. So, um, you know, I've got to be able to make a lot of different things to keep it interesting uh, for me and not just making architecture, but also making videos and physical products and all these different things. Um, so yeah, I think my, my advice would be, you know, go make things um, along with a thousand other things like, you know, care a lot less about what other people think. I, re I remember when I, when I first started the business and like everybody, I had a pretty limited portfolio. My portfolio was other people's work predominantly. Right. Yep. Um, and and I kept thinking like everyone's just going to notice that my portfolio hasn't changed in like three or four months. Like I'm not cranking out a new building every six months and nobody cares. <laughs> your, your clients, like there's a base level of expectation that your clients expect in your portfolio. And then they've moved on. All they care about is like, can this guy solve my problem? Cause like your client has a problem <laughs> in their head and all they care about is, you know, can you solve it? And, you know, I think if I had learned that lesson a long time ago, it would have made those early client meetings uh, where I really felt like I was sitting down trying to sell myself, like sell my portfolio. It would have completely changed the conversation. I, I don't know what your experience with those early meetings was like, but like selling hard is just a total turnoff to, <laughs> to potential clients. I, I didn't realize um, how maybe difficult it was. Because it was a long time ago that, that I started it. And now I started training some staff to do it. And, and I was the cl client. And I had them, you know, I even, I even pretended to get lost. Because that's, <laughs> that's how some, hey, I'm trying to find your office, right? So I called them up and said I was lost. <laughs> and, awesome. and I mean, these guys at my firm know me. You know, they've worked here for at least three, four years. And they were nervous selling to me. And I was like, holy cow, if this is someone you know, you know, imagine someone yeah. you don't know. Um, yeah. So it was insightful being on, on the other side of that and seeing yeah. that and, and being able to, you know, relay experiences of what, what to do, what not to do, um, what the say, client's what you, looking for. Yeah, what did you change? Because I have kind of a simple solution for it, but I'm interested to hear what, like, what is the education process like? Did you have a piece of advice for them? For, well, um, the, the main thing that I try to get across to them is that the meeting is about their idea. It's about them. It's not really about you. The first thing, everything you got to do is draw it about them and then find those points that, that, okay, then how can you help them get to that goal? So that's, yeah. Was that what you were going to say or? That was the, uh, precisely it. Like okay. I, I, I basically picture myself as opposed to sitting across the table from them, even though I'm physically sitting across the table for them, I sort of have this mental image of me like with my arm around their shoulder going, I can help you, man. Just tell me what you want and, and I'll help you figure it out. Like that is that pivot for me went from like, Hey, Hey, you got to hire me or, you know, like th this idea that like this, I'm going to lose this job. Like they're, they're going to hate me, you know, and they're going to yep. walk out and um, you know, it's not a job I ever had. This is, they, they're walking in and I'm trying to help them. And they can walk out that door and like, maybe they'll work with me or maybe, maybe they won't. But if they've walked out with more information and I've kind of helped steer them in the right direction to what they want, total success. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been a great podcast that I want to thank you for coming on. I'm sure that the audience would thank you too, but I'm just doing it for, for them. <laughs> um, so any, as we part, Anything you want to leave them with, any ideas, any uh, places to go, um, things to check out, uh, this is your time and, and we'll wrap it up. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I really, 
I love what you're, you've done with the podcast here and your mission. You know, we share a similar mission to help educate and uh, make the profession a better place for all of us to be and practice in and, you know, hopefully educate potential clients on the value of architecture. I think there's plenty of people who can sit around and complain about how bad it is, but I think people like you and Lance and me, uh, you know, we're able to take, you know, make this content and put out our ideas in the world and really uh, act and to make change. And so, you know, I would encourage people to, to do a similar thing. If, um, if people want to learn more about what I'm doing online, you can find me at 30by40.com and it's forward slash learn. That's where I have all my resources there. So check that out. There's ton of free stuff. Most of what I put out in the world is free, completely free. Um, so I know we've talked about my course before. Um, that is to help support making more videos and educating more people. Um, so I don't want people to think that that's all it is, is paid stuff. There's tons of free stuff there. So just go check that out. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your time. It's been great chatting with you. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. And, and Eric, thanks again for being on. Right on. See you later, man. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on the iTunes app. Tip your barista, and we'll see you next week for more Monday morning coffee with Inside the Firm.